Hey everyone, the semester is starting up again, and for all of the good things that that brings, if you are like every grad student I have ever met, that also brings just a tiny bit of panic because chances are you haven't met your writing goals over the summer. And that's okay, life happens. Luckily for you, I am an incredibly fast writer. My all-time record, seven pages in 40 minutes. Not only am I a fast writer personally, but I am absolutely great at helping my clients write quickly, which is why I have launched a special offer for the start of the semester, which is the 10 Pages Today workshop. It's exactly like it sounds. You bring your current project. I bring my superpower for writing quickly. We spend six hours together and you leave with 10 pages. But more than that, if for any reason you don't finish 10 pages, I will refund you that percentage of the purchase price. So here's how it works. We write 10 pages, you pay me the full price. You write nine pages, I refund you 10%. You write five pages, I refund you 50. Let's meet those writing goals. Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of WTF PhD, the podcast where I try and solve all of your PH dilemmas. I am so excited and happy to be here with you today. So I want to tell you all about a PH dilemma that I have been having, which is what should the topic be for this first podcast? I've run through a variety of options in my head. Should I talk about how to approach coursework to make it work for you? Or should I talk about how to bust writer's block? And granted, we will get to all of those things in the fullness of time. But today, I wanted to try and talk about one experience that is almost universal throughout grad school, not just your PhD, but your master's too. And that experience is teaching. Even if your goal is to be a research scientist, most people will spend a quarter or a semester or some amount of time earning their bread and butter through teaching or being a teacher's assistant. Today, we're going to go into one of the biggest problems that even veteran instructors face, and that is establishing yourself as the authority at the front of the room. This can be a thorny topic for new teachers and for veteran teachers. So today, I want to talk about how to walk into that room with confidence and how to project that you are the authority. So the loose layout of today is I'm going to tell you a bit about my own experience with this topic and my own teaching insecurities and how I started teaching. We're going to bust a few myths about what makes for an authoritative presence at the front of the classroom. And then as I always strive to do here at WTF PhD, I'm going to give you some practical and practicable advice, things that you can take with you at the end of our time together and implement immediately so that you walk into that classroom on the first day, feel like the badass you are, ready for a great semester. No time like the present, right? So let's dive into it. Let me tell you about my first experience teaching. So I graduated with my bachelor's in June of 2009, and I taught my first class in August 
of 2009. So I had about a month, in a full month and a couple of weeks in between transitioning from student to teacher, and that will give you whiplash. It is intimidating to stand in front of a room full of students and realize that a few weeks ago you were in their shoes and now you have this amount of authority over them and you are responsible for guiding them through this journey and hopefully imparting some knowledge. And particularly if you're like me, I joined a master's program where most folks taught a common class. It was public speaking. Everybody at the university had to take it. And it was sort of what the comm department did with most of its master's students is we were all responsible for teaching two sections of public speaking. And so we came in. And we had a four-day training the week before classes started, a four-day intensive training on the course and how to teach the course and problems that you might run into and how to swerve those problems. And it was a good, good training. But I'm not sure there is an amount of training in the world that can really fully prepare you for that shift from I was a student last semester and I am a teacher, this one. So it was incredibly intimidating. And of course, we always want to go into our intersectionality. It was intimidating for me as a woman, especially a woman who researched gender and education and knew all the stats, right, about how women are seen as less authoritative in front of the classroom, and also is a small person. So I am under five feet tall, so I don't necessarily look the most authoritative. I don't look like what people imagine when they imagine a professor. So I had a ton of nervousness. Also at the time, I had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder and undiagnosed ADHD. So I had the terrible cocktail of crippling anxiety and also rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So I was scared shitless that I had no idea how to do this thing and also knew that I would be fucking crushed by any perceived criticism, no matter how minor. So how do you go into the classroom projecting some kind of authority, especially when everything in you is screaming that you're a fraud? You're still in the mind state of a student, you are weeks out of undergrad, and you've had at most a four-day training on this subject. How do you walk into that room with confidence? Well, let's start talking about what not to do. Years later, I was attending what might have been my third or fourth teaching crash course, this one for a political science department. And there was a very well-respected, happened to be white male teacher who was part of the training for new poli-sci instructors. Now, I had been teaching for quite some time at this point, but it was my first year teaching for political science, and all instructors who were new on a political science contract had to go to this training. That's fine. We love a good training. So someone asks this particular man, how do you establish your credibility at the front of the room? And the answer that he gave was be in the room as early as possible. Be in the room 
10 minutes before class starts so that students are coming into your space and you're not walking into their space. Now, I thought this was absurd. And later that evening at the very traditional meeting of graduate students at a bar to discuss and dissect training, I made a joke about it, about how silly I thought it was. And much to my surprise, new and veteran political science grad student instructors were defending this idea that you should be in the room as early as possible so that students are coming into your space and you're not going into theirs. And you know what? Here's what I'll say about that. If that is a mental trick that helps you do the thing, then absolutely use it. However, I have a really difficult time with location-based credibility. Because the thing is, If your credibility is based on what room you're in and when you get to that room, you're really going to struggle with the other parts of being a credible teacher, which is office hours, right? So a lot of grad students ride public transportation. Public transportation is not always the most reliable. So if you come to your office because you were late through no fault of your own for office hours and there's a line of students, have you suddenly lost credibility? Of course you haven't, right? So there's, I think, some inherent flaws in the idea that your credibility is based on the time you get to a location, The other flaw with that, very simply, is that it's against university policy. At most universities, there are 10 or 15 minutes between classes, and the university policy states that the outgoing professor has half of that time to wrap things up in the classroom. So for instance, if they're in the middle of a slide or a student's just asked a really good question, or as students do, if they come up to ask questions after the time or simply to pack up their stuff and erase the whiteboard, they are entitled to that time. That's policy. And so to, you know, kind of swan in there the minute the bell rings or your clock says that class is over is, to be very blunt, kind of a dick move. And the golden rule, right? If you wouldn't want someone Kool-Aid manning into your classroom the minute class is over, then don't do it to someone else. So that's myth number one. Your authority is not based on when you get to the classroom or the idea that students are walking into your space rather than you walking into theirs. But again, if getting to the classroom early helps, if making it feel like it's your space helps, use it. By all means, use what works right? But I don't think that that's where you should establish or center the basis of your authority for a classroom. Now, the second myth on where your credibility in the classroom comes from, this one might be a little bit harder for folks to reckon with because chances are if you have made it all the way to your master's or your PhD, you, like I did for a very long time, think that a lot of your self-worth comes from being intelligent. And if that's not something you struggle with, congratulations. But I will tell you that I struggled with it for years and that most academics I've met have some version of that nestled down somewhere in their psyche. And so this leads to the myth, right, that your authority in the classroom comes from being the smartest person in the classroom. And it straight up doesn't. It just doesn't. You're not there to be smart. You know, you are there to lead people 
through the journey that is knowledge acquisition. And that can certainly be helped if you're smart, but you don't need to be the smartest person in the room to do that. And if you think that you have to be the smartest person in the room, two things are going to happen to you inevitably. One day you are going to have a student who is smarter than you are. In fact, this, I've been lucky that this happens to me a lot. I have students that blow me away. And when you are not invested in thinking that you have to be the smartest person in the room, you can really enjoy having a room full of brilliant minds that you get to learn with, right? But if you have to be the smartest person in the room, when you inevitably have a student that is smarter than you, you're going to have a little bit of a breakdown and not know how to lead that class. It's going to become a crisis. But the second and most important thing is that if you go through any part of grad school, whether it be your courses, your dissertation, your teaching, thinking that your credibility in that area comes from being the smartest person in the room, you are going to waste an immense amount of time and energy and mental health on either being or appearing to be the smartest person in the room. So just don't do it, babes. That's not where your authority comes from. So if it doesn't come from when you get to the room and it doesn't come from being the smartest person in the room, where does it come from? Well, this isn't really a myth, but we've already sort of ruled out the idea that it comes from decades and decades of training, right? Many of us go into our first TA assignment with next to no preparation. You know, we may have the syllabus from the course if we're TAing for an instructor. We may have the syllabus and kind of some departmental guidelines and a day or two of training on how not to get the university sued. If you are going to be the instructor of record like I was, then you might have, you know, a four-day or a seven-day training on kind of the first half of this class. You'll have the syllabus. You'll also have probably a day dedicated to how not to get the university sued, etc. So if it doesn't come from years of training, being the smartest person in the room, or when you get to the room, where is the solid, rooted place that your credibility in front of that room comes from? And I will tell you where it has always come from for me, and I will tell you This is something that I share with my clients when they are teaching for the first time, and it has seemed to work well for them. The place that your credibility comes from is in being the expert at knowing how to learn. That is something that no one can take away from you, whether you are teaching your first class on the first day of your master's program, or you are in the last year of your PhD, you undoubtedly know how to learn. You know how to get a bachelor's degree because you would not be in front of that classroom if you did not already know that. Your credibility comes from knowing how to learn. And no matter what the subject matter is that you are teaching those students, what you are fundamentally teaching them is how to learn. And the subject matter is the case study you are using to teach them how to learn. This is why one of the things that I intensely advocate for my clients is before you go into the classroom, spend some time thinking and talking and debating about what your definition of learning is. I'll give you mine. My definition of learning is the process through which new information becomes a part of your world view. So I don't want my students to memorize a lot of facts 
I don't want them to kind of info dump, right? Memorize it before a test and then forget it. I don't want my students to retain everything from our semester together. That's impossible unless you have a very specific type of memory. What I want is for my students to resonate with material that impacts them, right? What I want is for my students to take new knowledge and incorporate it into how they see the world. And so I design my classes in ways that I hope facilitate that process. But when you have an idea of what learning is to you, you can go into that classroom knowing, okay, I am the expert in the room of how to get a bachelor's degree. Statistically, I am the only one in the room who has done that. I know how to learn. I know how to learn so well that I am taking my learning journey to the graduate student level. And so what I can do for these students is I can show them how to learn, not just in this class, but I will use this course's material to show them how to do that. And for me, I have always found a profound amount of freedom knowing that that is where my credibility comes from because no matter what else you can say about me, you have to say that I know how to learn. That's a topic that I am passionate about and it's something that I love sharing with others. And no matter what else someone can say about you, if you are listening to this podcast and preparing for your first day of teaching, they have to acknowledge that you know how to learn and that is where your credibility comes from. Now, we're always a fan of open conversation here at WTF PhD. So if there's a way that works for some of my veteran instructors or veteran teaching assistants to feel that they know where their credibility comes from, please feel free to share that with us. You can write to me at jamie, J-A-I-M-E, at abd2phd.com. You can use the contact form on the WTF PhD website. You can comment on this podcast. There's a ton of ways to get a hold of us. Do feel free to share your thoughts. Now, moving on into what I always try and do for you is give you actual solid advice, enough with the theoretical, right? So here are some best practices for all teachers, but in particular, if you are new to teaching and you're wondering, what can I do and what can I not do? Here are some things that I highly, highly, highly recommend you do. Thing number one is read the material or watch it or whatever the material is, engage with it as if you were a student. Set a personal goal for yourself to engage with all of the material. Will you fall short? Maybe. There are semesters when I have not met that personal goal, but there are semesters when I have. So the reason that I encourage you to engage with the material like a student is because, one, you very simply want to know what they are reading and learning so that you can lead them through a discussion of it and you can answer their questions, etc. Two, if you are lucky enough to teach the same class multiple times, you will gain new perspectives on that material. Chances are, if you are in a master's or a PhD program, 
you have been in situations where you have read and reread the same book for fun or because it was assigned in multiple classes, etc. And that you get something new from it every time. And I have found that I can build a ton of credibility and also a lot of empathy with my students when I start our conversation by saying, you know, I was reading this again. I've read this before, but I was reading this again because I assigned it to all of you. And what really stuck out to me this time was X. So that is one great way to start conversation with your students, letting them know that you are putting in the work right alongside of them. And also sharing a little bit about your perspective. That's 1000% okay to do. And often when you share a little bit about what you picked up on, it creates kind of a yes and situation. So you'll get a student who said, yeah, I picked up on that, but I was really struck by, or I picked up on that and I was wondering if, or huh, I didn't see that at all, but what do you think of X, right? And that is the type of conversation that we most often want in our classrooms. So tip number two is if you are debating what to do, tell them, tell your students. I start classes like this all the time. I'll say, hey, everyone, I have two ideas for how we can engage with this material today. So in one idea, we start the class with a video clip that I hope you'll enjoy. And then we go into an activity and we wrap up with discussion. And the other way that class can go today is you can all tell me what you thought about the material and we can go straight into discussion and then we can wrap up by having a question and answer period about our upcoming assignments. And they'll tell you. They'll tell you what they want to do. And sometimes they'll come up with their ideas of their own. They'll say, we're tired. Can we start with a video so we can kind of ease into class? But then instead of activity, can we go straight into discussion so we still have time for question and answer? Like they have good ideas about how the format of class should work for them. And that is ultimately what we're there to do is learning is a process that needs to work for them. Because if it doesn't work for them, and this may seem a bit like a tautology, if the process of learning we've created doesn't work for them, then we have already failed. So if you are debating what to do, tell them. Tell them that you're debating and ask for their opinion. Thing number three is particularly if you are the instructor of record, meaning that if you are teaching a class of your own, as opposed to being a teaching assistant for someone else who is listed as the instructor in like the course catalog and things. If you're the instructor of record, so it's your name next to the course in the catalog, right? And you feel like something is not working, have that conversation with them. Say, hey, I feel like this isn't working. Is that just me? And if it's not just me, how do we fix it? Creating this, because what that does is it, it creates a situation in which they have a stake in what happens in the class. And so you can kind of spark a little bit of intrinsic motivation there. So one way that I use this is the first time that I taught intro to LGBT studies as a night class. So instead of meeting two or three days a week, we were meeting once a week for three hours. So people are, they're not tired because it's night. They're tired because you are cramming so much material into one sitting. And there's a steep drop off of what they forget between weeks. That's just, you know, 
human memory and the fact that they have a lot going on. And so my syllabus was still set up so that the final assignment was as if we were meeting several times a week. And we got around midterms and I had had them turn in some sort of preparatory assignment. Maybe it was a lit review or project proposal, something like that. And they just weren't good which was weird because this was a really smart, really engaged class. I was teaching intro to LGBT studies in a conservative area in Indiana, or I should say an extra conservative area in Indiana. So the students that were there really wanted to be there. They were already very motivated and they were very bright. And it was just very strange that this assignment wasn't good. And so what I did in our next class is for the second half of class, after we'd got through kind of the content pieces, the material, I said, hey, I need you all to know that this is not the level of work I would expect based on everything about you. So that makes me feel like something about this assignment is not working for you. Is that just me? Or, you know, were you just all tired for midterms and forgot you had this class because it only meets once a week? You know, what's the what? And so for the second half of class, for the next 75 minutes of that class meeting, they told me the ways in which that just wasn't working for them. And so what we did is we brainstormed together a different final assignment scenario that would work. And when I tell you that the things that they turned in were amazing, they were amazing because we had found something that had worked and they had created something that they wanted, which meant we had that magical intrinsic motivation, right? The educator's paradox is always, always, always the students learn best when they are internally or intrinsically motivated. But the second that you reward intrinsic motivation, it becomes external or extrinsic. So what do we do about that? And I'm not an expert. This is not my study area at all, but I can tell you in my experience as a teacher, the best way that I have found is to invite your students into the decision-making process about things like assignments. And if you're debating, you know, should we watch a portion of a documentary or discuss the reading? Or, hey guys, I have two readings that would both be very good for this unit. Do you want to do this one, which has the strengths A, B, and C? Do you want to do this one that has the strengths D, E, and F? Or, you know, do you want to pick and then whoever reads book A will have to summarize it for the rest of the class and the students who read book B will have to summarize it for the students who didn't. Those are all ways when students feel like they are part of the class, then they will perform just above and beyond because they're interested. So don't shy away from if you're having a debate, you know, you're not sure what to do. You're not sure what reading to pick. You're not sure what format class should be in that day. If you feel like something is not working, invite your students into that decision-making process. You absolutely can do that. And I know far too many talented instructors who don't do that because they fear that they will lose credibility from not magically knowing. But it's actually the opposite. Every time I have done that, I have gained credibility with my students because they see, first of all, they see I'm invested in making sure that they're learning, which is what they really want from you. Far more than they want you to be the world's leading expert in a subject, they want you to be invested in their learning. And the reasons for that are complex and emotional and maybe the subject for another podcast. But when you show that you are invested in their learning, 
you gain a ton of credibility in their eyes. So don't be afraid to ask those questions, to ask if something's working or not, to ask for their input. You can only gain credibility from that. So to sum up today, I want to remind you that your credibility comes from being the person in the room who is an expert at learning. Because by definition, you are the person who has learned the most in that room. And I don't mean like the most in life, because you never know. But I mean that you are the person who has the most formal degrees in that room, which is why you're there. And so you know how to learn in a particular way. You know how to learn to move them from not having a degree to a degree. And that's where your credibility comes from. And remember that you only gain credibility when you invite your students to participate in the decision-making process about the syllabus or about class with you. And as I wrap up today, I want to share a little bit of some of the best teaching advice I've ever received, which is from Dr. Mardia Bishop, who was the person who led the public speaking program at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign when I was there. She was the woman who was in charge of wrangling that four-day training, which was really, I know I've probably made it sound less than great, but it was as good as a four-day training could possibly be. And it was really just enough to like prepare you for the first two months without totally shutting down your brain through overwhelm. Marty Bishop was an amazing teaching mentor for me. And a lot of the way I teach is shaped by Dr. Bishop. So, hey, Dr. Bishop, if you're listening, you the best. But I want to share with you a couple of things she said that really saved me my first year of teaching from spinning out in a terrible anxiety episode. So one of the things that she said that has stuck with me and I have passed on to many friends and clients is you only have you only ever have to be one day ahead of the students. If you are a week ahead of them in terms of the course schedule, if you know what's happening next week, they will think that you are God. And I swear to you, in the path of decade of teaching, that has always proved to be true. You only need to be one day ahead of the students. You need to know what's going to happen today and you need to have a solid idea about what's going to happen the next time you meet. And that is all you need to know. You do not have to plan out the whole three or four months at the start. You don't even have to plan out the whole month. It is okay. You only need to be one day ahead of the students to be prepared. And the second thing that Dr. Bishop told me is that it is not your job to make sure that students get A's. It's not. If students want to get A's, you can help them do that, certainly. And you do that through clear expectations and consistent grading, etc. But the first semester of public speaking, I was killing myself grading speeches. I wondered how my colleagues were able to do this in under half an hour because I genuinely thought it was my responsibility to write every piece of feedback on their little eight and a half by 11 speech rubric that should they re-give that speech with every piece of advice on the paper, it would give them an A. And that's way too much time. And it will drive you crazy. And you shouldn't do that because that is not your responsibility, right? Your responsibility in grading 
is a little bit like triage at an emergency room, which is tell them the top three things that they need to improve and how to improve it if you can, right? So an example from my public speaking days, very clear example would be stay within the time limits, either meet the minimum time or don't exceed the maximum time, right? So a way that I would phrase that very quickly and succinctly after I learned how was be sure to time your practice sessions so that you meet the time requirements. The end, right? Um, Students who want to do really well and students who want to improve, they will seek you out in office hours. They will come talk to you after class. They will email you. So it is not your responsibility to make sure students get an A. Certainly do the things that facilitate A's. Be consistent in your grading. Have clear expectations. Be available to meet with students. Do all of those things. But whether or not they get an A or a B or a C or a D or an F, that's not on you. That's on them. So that is all the advice I have for you about teaching today. Go forth and be great. And if you have enjoyed today's podcast, if this has given you advice that you can use, please feel free to buy me a cup of coffee. The link is in the description. It helps keep me caffeinated and rambling on for more of these podcasts. It supports a small woman-owned business and I buy coffee from a another small woman-owned business. So your velocity of money is doing good throughout the community. So if you found something of value here and you feel like you can and you have the means to do so, I would be so, so grateful if you bought me a cup of coffee. Next week, I'm so excited to introduce you to one of the best professors I know, Dr. Dr. Kevin Fiedler. He makes math fun and a wonderful instructor. He's going to be here to answer our inaugural guest podcast. So our second overall podcast, but our first one with a guest. And he's going to answer the five WTF to P. He's going to answer the five WTF PhD podcast questions, which is other than your research topic, what did you learn during your PhD? Who should get a PhD? What advice would you give to someone starting their PhD? What advice would you give to someone in the middle of their PhD? And what advice would you like to give that we haven't covered yet? Join us next week. 